This is the Constructionist Podcast, where we take ancient stories, the person of Jesus, current events and topics, and help you construct a new Christian worldview that's relevant and loving to those around you. I'm your host, Kevin Bates. I'm a semiotician and community builder looking at the signs of the times to build a better future together. You are tuned into the Constructionist Podcast, and tonight we're continuing actually what has turned into a nine-part series on the body, constructing a new you. So tonight's topic is nutrition and fitness, part one, and we'll be discussing how nutrition and fitness affect your body. We're going to look at theology. We're going to look at science. We're going to look at a practicality and the application of things with the body, mind, and spirit. Next week, we actually have a special guest, Stacy Cannon. Stacy Cannon is a local to us here in Oregon, local nutrition coach, fitness coach, endurance plant-based athlete and coach, endurance race director, yoga instructor, and sound healer, also a meditation guide and expert. She is knowledgeable in a lot of things, and we look forward for her joining us uh, next week for an interview on the body, nutrition, and fitness. So as the constructionist, we desire for you to be able to navigate your life in the framework of a worldview that is relevant and loving to people. And part of this is getting our own house in order, learning to love ourselves so that we can figure out how to love others around us. I want to encourage you in something each and every week. We've actually encouraged a part of this series to watch a TED.com video uh, called The Benefits of Not Being a Jerk to Yourself by Dan Harris. The Benefits of Not Being a Jerk to Yourself by Dan Harris. I think that nutrition and fitness is so important in our lives that uh, it's time to not be a jerk to ourselves and what we eat and what we do with our bodies. So in previous podcasts, we've mentioned before that when you deconstruct old ideas, sometimes we don't move into a new reality and understanding of how to live. So it's very easy to deconstruct the old and become exactly like we were before. So I want to be so different, like the old adage says, adage says, I want to be so different, I end up exactly the same. So it's very easy to... Well, in this topic, it's very easy to get back into bad habits of eating, bad habits of exercise, bad habits of sedentary lifestyle. Why? Because we don't have a vision forward. We don't have the discipline to move us out of ruts that we create. So we're going to construct some thoughts today. This is our thinking space. We're not experts in this subject. We are just thinkers in this subject, and we have a lot of thoughts tonight. So we're presenting ideas and thoughts, practical things, applicable things, and theological ideas and concepts to live by. So this is a nine-part series, and if you've missed the last handful of weeks, we want you to get caught up. I want to encourage you to listen and to ask questions about those as well. We'll pick up those questions. Uh, the first week was on goal setting. Then we talked about habits and toxic behaviors, and then self-concept and beauty. Number four tonight is nutrition and fitness or fitness and nutrition. Uh, then next week is a spiritual practice and meditate, excuse me, part two. 
We're doing a two-part series on fitness and nutrition, but we are going to get into meditation next week as well. And there's going to be some crossover because Stacy is a meditation expert and guide. So uh, fitness and nutrition, part one, fitness and nutrition, part two, then spiritual practice and meditation, then healthy relationships, then mental health, and then rest. Of course, we neglect that a lot. And that is the end of this series. So a note to our supporters, number one, we want you to interact with us. We want to engage in conversation with you. And so if you're listening tonight or in the future or sometime this week, because we know that people listen tonight and then there's many others that listen through the week. And so we want you to make notes um, on the subject matter, ask questions in the comment box. but also through the week. If you want to give to us financially, we desire you to do that as well. So you could go to resonatelife.org, resonatelife.org. That link will be in the in the um, comment box underneath in the social media channel you're listening to. And you can go uh, give under the give tab if you desire that uh, for, for us. So we're talking tonight about fitness and nutrition, nutrition and fitness. And I'm just going to take a couple of minutes. We have a lot of material to cover. So an introduction for this is, um, an introduction to this is going to have to be really short and simple. So when we talk about nutrition, we're talking about what we're eating, uh, basically the food that we're ingesting in our bodies. When we talk about fitness, we're actually talking about intentional exercise. Um, and also what classifies nutrition, what is healthy eating, and also what is intentional exercise. So just know that you might feel like a fit person. You might feel like you're eating well, but we're going to walk through some materials that maybe you can rethink some things in your life, add some tools to your toolbox. Maybe you know all of this stuff already. Great. I'm glad. Maybe you struggle applying it. We're going to help you maybe put some tools in your toolbox for that as, as well. I think that nutrition and fitness really do guide many parts of our life. When we feel bad, then we don't necessarily do things in our life that promote um, some good. And so actually nutrition and fitness are regulators to other decision-making paradigms that we have. I would say that when we feel sick, like we are physically sick, it's very difficult to make clear decisions. It's very difficult to make sound spiritual uh, decisions and sound spiritual moves in our life. So I think that, I think that fitness and nutrition definitely guide and regulate a lot when we don't feel good like we're again sick it might affect our minds it might have or exasperate some mental health type things that we're having and so the therapy and the counseling that i've had in my life is it's a holistic process it's not just a a exercise of talking or an exercise of of therapy sitting on a couch and and interacting with your therapist. It's a holistic approach to your life where you work on your mind, you work on your body, and you work on your soul. So I hope that you're picking up on that, that we want you to live a solid, relevant Christian worldview in your life that's loving to yourself and to others. And a lot of times we struggle loving ourselves, and we think that fitness and nutrition is a selfish um, exercise when the Bible says, you know, don't think about this so much or 
uh, when, you know, maybe food is celebrated as a, uh, as a celebration or a, um, what do you call it, Jake? When you, when you eat something for fuel or for fun, maybe you think that that's what it is that you eat for fun more than you eat for fuel. Well, we need to rethink some things. I think the paradigm, make a paradigm shift when it comes to fitness and nutrition. And I hope that today helps you with that journey. Remember, we're all on a journey. Tonight is not about judgment. Tonight is not about criticism. Tonight is not about making you feel bad because you don't eat carrots. Tonight is not about making you feel bad because you're not a certain body mass index size. We're going to talk about those things, but we're all in a journey and we all need to start somewhere. And it's just all about one foot in front of the other, making small gains and small progress that equal a lifetime of health, nutrition, healthy eating, healthy body, healthy fitness, healthy lifestyle. And I, we've talked about this before, the, the Centurion Decat, Decathlon. When it comes to your physicality, what do you want to be like when you're 100? Maybe you want to be dead. I don't want to live to 100, right? Maybe you have that attitude. Okay, 95, 90, however long you want to live, that ending point, what do you want to be able to do there? Do you want to have a lifestyle and, and a fit lifestyle that you can pick up your great grandkids and you can still talk and see and, and hear? You want a, a functional life or a quality of life that meets your standard, whatever that standard is? Well, that starts with our nutrition, it starts with our fitness, and it starts now just putting some building blocks together that you can reach your Centurion Decathlon. So I hope that you that you get something out of tonight. All right, but first, before we get into applicable, practical things, we need to start with some foundational theological things and philosophical things and some science to kind of put it all together. So Sharia, you're gonna talk about the theology of fitness and nutrition. Take it away. Right. Yeah. So when we're talking about fitness, um, there's really not a whole lot to be found in the Bible about physical fitness, um, with some exceptions in um, the New Testament with writings that are attributed to Paul. Um, and in these cases, we have um, instances where physical training is used as a metaphor for spiritual training. So First um, Timothy 4.8 says, For bodily discipline is of only of little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things, since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. You've also got 1 Corinthians 9.25 saying, Everyone who competes practices self-discipline in everything. The runners do this to get a crown of leaves that shrivel up and die, but we do it to receive a crown that never dies. So why was Jesus uh, and all these pictures I see so ripped? That's what I want to know. Jesus is like right? jacked in these pictures. Probably because he was a carpenter, <laughs> right? Oh, that's true. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I'll sure. I think it's worth noting with these pictures. Um, the, the emphasis placed on the spiritual over the physical um, and that separation of spirit and body is more of a Greek thought than a Hebrew one. Um, mm. And it's one that I don't honestly think serves us very well when it comes to being whole human. So not a fan of Paul in, in this particular instance. Wow. Okay. That's, that's bold. So 
what do you mean um, that you're not a fan of Paul just in the way that he's writing? Or do you think that he has a cultural emphasis? He's trying to address something different that we're not seeing. That could be it too. Yeah. <laughs> just trying to be nicer to Paul than <laughs> yeah, I... get out of town. Right. <laughs> um. A little bit relatedly, though, I was thinking about um, the original command given to humanity in Genesis. So be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, care for the earth. Um, and thinking about how in Genesis our bodies are made from the earth. Um, so there's this idea of mutuality and reciprocity and care. Um, like tending to our physical health is tending to the earth. Tending to the earth is caring for our physical health. Um, and I think that's a more holistic thing. It doesn't necessarily touch on, you know, having an exercise regimen or whatever, but, um, I do think it addresses our, our physical makeup, um, in a more holistic way. Mm. Um, also, I just think that implicit in the idea of loving others as ourselves is that, uh, loving ourselves involves caring for our bodies, which includes fitness. Yes. And we know in the history of what happens post uh, Christ, there would be a, a culture um, theology of Gnosticism that emerged mm -hmm. um, pre and post. And, and so the Gnostics didn't care either. They didn't, they didn't, they cared so much about the body that they became very basically puritanistic about the body, uh, or they just hated the body and they didn't care about the body at all. Um, because the mm -hmm. spirit, the spirit was good, um, and the body was bad. And so that was expressed in multiple ways or probably t t tons of ways. But, uh, mm -hmm. but we know that there was a movement to not care about the body at all that was looked down upon. And I, I, I think we see discipline a lot in throughout scripture mm -hmm. with, whoa, I just got zoomed in a big, a lot again. I'm sorry. I'll, I'll scoot back a bit. Um, <laughs> I don't know what happened there. Uh, so we see discipline. We see that in in the Old Testament, New Testament world, uh, they would have been manual agrarian. Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. the amount of physical activity, there wasn't sedentary lifestyle. If right. you were, if you were overweight, overweight, that was a sign of stature and wealth and prominence. And then you're able to, to feed yourself very well. And so, um, we have to be careful looking at to, in today's language of our of our sedentary lives of our sit down go to work type setting that mm -hmm. we don't have the same that physical gain is very little right yeah mm -hmm. so be careful right most of us are not laborers in the same way no we're not we're not tilling the soil by hand we're not we're not walking everywhere we go I mean, mm -hmm. if you walked everywhere you went, your body would look much different. I got. So if I could just point out one thing when talking about this subject, the subject is very personal to me. 
because I'm a pastor and in the church, uh, being a pastor, fitness and exercise, um, just healthy lifestyle, healthy eating, uh, has not been a cultural, uh, has not been culturally promoted within the church. It's and been yeah, it's down. been, it's been downplayed in a lot of circles based on these, probably these, this look of this scripture or these couple of scriptures that you read, Shreya. And that I'm idea just going to, the spirit and the body are disconnected. Right, right. Yeah. So in all honesty, and, I, and I'll just speak if there's a pastor listening right now, uh, I know that there are reasons outside of nutrition and fitness, there's genetics and there's all kinds of reasons to be overweight. I do know a lot of overweight pastors that do not take care of themselves because maybe they've expensed their life to the church and maybe they've expensed their life to their work. Um, and it's a sign of some other issue going on, maybe a work addiction or maybe some toxic environment that, that is causing them lots of stress. I think that pastors need to lead by example when it comes to nutrition and fitness. And that's all I have to say about that. I think that we need to lead our churches in example when it comes to healthy lifestyle, eating, and exercise. Okay, go ahead, Sharia. Sorry to interrupt so much. Okay. Take it away. Yeah, so now we're talking about food, which the Bible does have quite a bit more to say about explicitly. Um, and food shows up in a couple of contexts. Um, one is in the idea of dependence on God um, and interdependence on others as well. Um, and we'll get to that part a little later as we talk about community. Um, but simply put, we need food. We're dependent upon it. Um, and we see in the Exodus story, God providing manna in the wilderness so the Israelites can survive. Um, and this idea gets carried forward in the New Testament and in Christian culture, really, with this idea of daily bread, um, sometimes referring to actual food, sometimes referring to faith. Um, I think something related to dependence that also comes up is the, the idea of appetite and shame. Um, there are verses like in Proverbs that warn of an unchecked appetite. And while I do think that overconsumption is a negative thing about our culture, um, I think that these verses have led us to feel shame around our individual appetites. And because we need food to survive, we then associate these verses about greed and overconsumption with our normal need for food um, and can end up feeling shame over having needs and wants. Mm -hmm. uh, like the evangelical cliche that Jesus is all you need um, can be really shaming when your human body wants something. Mm. Um, and I think that this is a message that has been especially harmful for women um, who are expected to be in more of a caregiver role rather than a care receiver role um, that further requires women to ignore their own wants and needs for the sake of mm. others. And that can contribute to unhealthy relationships with food. Mm. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, thank, thank you for bringing that up. Yeah. Another way that food shows up in the Bible is as a part of worship, uh, mostly through sacrifices. Um, so there's the idea of first fruits, giving back to God the first portion of your harvest as a sign of gratefulness. 
Um, and there's also some of that interdependence baked into these rituals. So in the Old Testament, the Levites, who were the priests, were not given land. Um, so they didn't have land to have animals. They didn't have land to grow food. Instead, their primary role was to facilitate worship in the community. And so community sacrifices would often be eaten by the priests and their families. Um, so these tithes didn't just go to God, you know, burned up on the altar as smoke, um, but they also supported the people who directly served God in their communities. Festivals and celebrations were another worshipful use of food. Um, so we've had the privilege at Resonate of experiencing Passover celebrations, which occur around a meal. And there are items on the plate that represent and illustrate portions of the Exodus story. Um, so like, remember the horseradish is meant to evoke tears, um, providing a, a visceral, almost emotional connection to the history. Um, so food has an illustrative quality about it too. Uh, celebrations and regular family meals show up in the biblical text. Um, to foster community. So we heard Jake talk, I think last week, um, about how food brings people together. And we see Jesus do this by dining with outcasts and notorious sinners. Not only is Jesus building relationship with these folks, um, but he's also showing alignment with those who religion left behind. After Jesus is raised from the dead, he eats a meal with his disciples and then they recognize him. It's in the vulnerability of table fellowship that they are able to see Jesus. There's so also the last. If you just pause just for oh, a second, there's there. a lot of. Yeah. So you, in John, the book of John, there's, mm -hmm. I can't remember how many meals there are, seven or oh, seven would be a nice figure, right? So if there would be, if, and I can't remember how many there are, but there's meals, specific meals mm -hmm. um, that are really pointed out that ministry mm -hmm. happens around food and yeah. people are taught, people are affirmed, people are encouraged, people are called around mm -hmm. food. So in the when you say there's a vulnerable uh, activity that's happening, um, I think that food gives us that space. It's not a place, yeah. it's a space. And that space is where uh, we see a lot of things happen ministry, calling, encouragement, maybe even reprimand. We yeah. see that occurring there at the, around the table. When uh, Jesus comes back, the first thing he does is eat with his disciples. Mm -hmm. Yep. He eats the people on the road to Emmaus. Mm -hmm. So it's a very food-based gospel. I take, I take the Lord's Prayer, the... Uh, give us this day of daily bread is very practical. Mm -hmm. it's, the, it's the giving everyone the bread that they need and it's mm -hmm. in vulnerability. Mastication is vulnerable. Mm -hmm. And so it's a, uh, it's a subject of letting your guard down, your putting your weapons down. down. Right. Yep. All right. Just yeah. continue on Shreya. Thank you. Yeah. Um, the last thing I wanted to talk about was um, the Lord's Supper and the church's tradition of communion. Um, so the Last Supper was the Passover meal that I just mentioned. Um, it was a full dinner with at least four cups of wine. And after Jesus's death and resurrection, the early church would gather for a meal. This was their communion. It was a full meal. Um, 
And eventually it became the small piece of bread and the sip of wine or juice. Um, and I'm curious if that move has more to do with the practicality of feeding a large congregation a full meal every week, or if it reflects communion becoming an increasingly uh, symbolic ritual. Um, but either way, I think the important part is that we eat it. It becomes part of us. We are what we eat. Yeah. Mm. It's a meal that's not purchased. It's called mm -hmm. the love, the love feast. Mm -hmm. And if you if you read through the New Testament and other writings, uh, I think why it got scaled down is because people were partying so hard that, yeah. Four yeah. cups of wine. Four cups of wine and more. And you look at Jesus' <laughs> first miracle, he made water <laughs> into wine. And so there's a lot of partying, there's a lot of community, there's a lot of eating, there's a lot of, yeah, feeding mm -hmm. the people that probably don't have so i have a prediction about what you said sherry in the beginning that okay. there's not a lot said about uh not prediction theory i have a theory about okay. what you were saying in the beginning that there's not a lot said about exercise or fitness in scripture but there's a lot said around food yeah right so mm -hmm. my guess is food was a normal natural exercise around celebration festivals feasting for mm -hmm. the jewish people but exercise as you said was possibly because of what uh maybe a greek there's a some kind of greek context and there is a greek context to exercise and so exercise would have probably been thought of as pagan oh, yeah. um mm. because of what because of what greeks did with exercise in the gymnasium so gymnasiums were, you know, that place where, you know, debauchery and sin and, and such was rampant, they would have thought. So, so probably steering away or even thinking, well, that's not profitable for you to focus mm -hmm. on that probably would be just because of the cultural, what Greeks did with exercise versus <clears throat> there was a very consumer lifestyle to Greeks and so promoting mm -hmm. food around a table, familial friends, gathering people around probably would have been maybe a little anti-Greek. I'm not sure what Greeks did with food, but that's just maybe a guess. It's great. Good guess. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So there's there's Sounds something like a good, good theory. <laughs> good theory, yeah. Well, thank you. I think that theology and science marry one another. And I don't separate science from theology anymore. So I think that there's things in science that can support theology, things in theology that can support science. And we don't need to make them exclusive of one another. They can work together in harmony and tandem and um, synergistically. So before I start with the science portion, um, acknowledging that that Shreya and myself are giving two foundational pieces to fitness and nutrition. And then Jake is going to take application and probably just jump around a little bit when it comes to application, because there's a lot to say when it comes to how to apply nutrition and fitness. So we're, we're going to hope to spend some time we'll in probably that. probably get more into application next week as well. As well. Yes. Yes. And some part, some basics of part two. Part two is Stacy Cannon, right? Yeah. 
So the first thing I have to say when it comes to science and how we look at science or read about science, we need to be careful with what we read. There is a difference in papers and research. There's white papers, there's blue papers. And so the white papers, it's the good research, it's the science research. It's done with, oh, controls and there's data to back it. And so when we do our homework, we read research. So let me just say that again. When we do homework, like when we say, I'm going to go do my homework and we're going to read about science and nutrition. We're going to read good research. No one is researching except scientists. And that's what we really need to get straight in our head. When I go do my research, that does not mean that I go to Google and just look up articles and read articles and I did my research. There's scientists who do research. We're just reading articles. So let's just make sure that we have that clear because there's good research out there about a lot of topics. I don't do research. I read articles. So the data and the research say a certain thing and we need to read good research. How to find that? Um, Well, there's when it comes to nutrition and science, read scientific articles from reputable scientific based sites and companies. So there are companies out there, scientific companies, and also scientific articles that you can read that are from schools and Harvard and some other schools you can read about scientific research on nutrition and fitness. But be very careful who paid for that science experiment or set of experiments to produce the research. So if you're reading about nutrition and that was paid by a soda pop company, you know that probably the research is going to be bent in a certain way towards drinking soda pop is okay, or drinking that amount of caffeine on a daily basis. There's not a lot of, there's, there's caffeine's not that bad for you. So just know that when you're reading good research, just look at the, maybe the conclusions in the end or this, this, this scientific research was paid for by a sugar company. So if it's paid for by a sugar company, it's probably leaning in a certain way. So just know that read good, unbiased research. Just remember you're not doing the research though. You're reading the article about the research and the outcomes of the research. Go ahead, Jake. All research is biased no matter what, right? Well, sure. Yeah. Or uh, to a point. I mean, you, you start with your controls, and so there's going to be there's going to be some level of, of bias in your study. Um, yes. Yet, we can we can be above the paper and the research by recognizing the bias as we read it. Right. So there's a couple of sites that I can point you to that these are medical doctors and scientific professionals that give a lot of good and base their talks on good research. One is Andrew Huberman. He is a neurobiologist and ophthalmologist or ophthalmologist from Stanford. And he does a lot of good primary, but also offers good research. So if you wanted to go to Andrew Huberman's 
podcast or the andrewhubermanlab.com. You can pick up some good information there. If you want to go to David Sinclair, David Sinclair is a longevity doctor. He works on aging diseases. He has a lot of good primary research and also offers good research as well. And then there's Peter Atia, Dr. Peter Atia, and you can go to his site and he offers some good solid research and does primary research as well. So those three people or those three scientists are some people that I um, base my lifestyle choices and also my decisions on. Um, there's others out there, but just know that some of the people out there are promoting good things. There's good things out there to think about, but they might not have the data that you need to support maybe the change. Maybe it's not enough data for you and you need to think through it um, more. I'm going to give you some examples of that as I go through the science. All right. So first, let's talk about some um components, I guess, to nutrition, I'll call them. So your first component to learn about nutrition is there's something called metabolism. So when you eat food, uh, how you digest that food, the amount of calories you pull from that food, it's the process by which the body changes food and what you're drinking into energy. That is called your metabolism. Okay. It is a false number. It's a, it's a, it's a falsehood to say, I, I can't lose weight because I have a slow metabolism. Okay. So, so that is just language that I don't use anymore. And it's just not really backed by research. There's reasons why your metabolism might be quote slower or faster. Um, but people with fast metabolism, have weight challenges, fat challenges, uh, body, body fat challenges, and people with slow metabolism have body fat challenges. And so that kind of language is not backed uh, by research. So your body is composed or your body size and your muscles, your fat tissue, and in comparison, the percentage of your lean muscle mass compared to your fat mass is called your body composition, your body composition. So we have our metabolism, we have our body composition and everyone looks different. There's not, except if you're an identical twin. So let's, you know, they have the exact DNA between the two of them. Most of us are not identical twins. We all have different body compositions. We all have different metabolisms, how we metabolize food, um, in what manner, the, uh, the efficiency of metabolism, all based on different outside and internal factors, our genetics, our outside influences, our stresses, um, what we're actually eating, how fit we are in that moment that we're eating that, it all is a factor of how we process foods. So just know and i hope that through this that we can hopefully be motivated to make small changes that lead to bigger changes that lead to a lifestyle of health and fitness the next term that i'm going to give is macro macronutrients so we have our metabolism we have our body composition 
and now we have macronutrients. If you want to throw up that picture, Rob, macronutrients are the nutrients your body needs in large amounts. So this is our carbs, our proteins, and our fats. Our carbs, our protein, and our fats are called macronutrients. They're the nutrients that give your energy, give you energy and are called, some people call them macros. My mac, I need to calculate my macros. Mind Those your are, macros. What'd you say? Mind your macros. Mind your macros, right. So macronutrients uh, contain the components of food that your body needs to maintain system and structure like bone density and lean muscle mass and and such. So you need all three of these macronutrients in order to have a healthy diet. Everybody, then our next term, everybody burns a certain, uh, every day, a certain number of calories. And our calories are uh, systems of energy. And I'm not gonna tell you exactly how they uh, calculate calories and how they do that. You can look that up later. But everyone has what they call a basal metabolic rate. Your basal metabolic rate is your, you can pull that picture down, Rob. Your basal metabolic rate is your the number of calories that you are burning at rest. Just basically just when you're laying on the couch doing nothing and just barely breathing, that's your basal metabolic rate. Now there's all kinds of calculations to find your BMR. Your BMR, that's what they call that for short. Your BMR is the basic foundational lowest amount of calories that you can take in to maintain homeostasis. Can, you, uh, can you give me the dif difference of basal metabolic rate and resting metabolic rate? Describe the difference for me. Um... I believe what you're, well, I, I know what you're talking about as resting metabolic rate. When you wake up, what you are burning without, uh, without any type of oh. exercise. Basal then, metabolic rate is, well, what I just said, the least amount of calories that you should be taking in for just minimum survival at rest. So there's a way to calculate that. But really the way to calculate that is to strap on a device around your mouth because the really the what you the CO2 that you expel out when you breathe out, that's the amount of that's how they figure out what your BMR is. And so it's actually a mask that you put on. You sit there for 15, 20, 20 minutes and they record um, your CO2 and that's your basal metabolic rate. So mine, I can't remember what mine is because I've had that test done. I think it's around 1,800 uh, calories a day. That is my basal metabolic rate. And so that's the baseline of how many calories I'm to take in uh, on a daily basis. And if I take that many calories in, I will, I will meet my goal. Um, if I exercise on top of that, then I need to take in more calories to not lose lean muscle mass. I need to take in more calories than my basal metabolic rate. In order to lose weight, okay, they talk about calories in and calories out. Let's just use that equation. I know that that's not necessarily a good equation to use, 
But if we use that equation, let's say my basal metabolic rate is 18 and I take in 2,500 calories for that day, but I exercise and I burn, let's say 800 calories on some big old long run that I do. So I need to eat more in order to just not burn and chew up lean muscle mass in order to lose weight properly. I usually do a deficit of like two or 300 calories. So you can't lose weight fast. You can't just lose weight off of quick diets. You can't lose weight off of fad diets. You might, excuse me, you might lose weight, but, but it's only temporary. And what's going to happen is you usually bounce right back. And usually it's, it's worse than before Mostly water water fluctuation there's water fluctuation that causes you to lose weight not fat percentage so you have your macronutrients then you have your micronutrients throw up that next picture this is the eat your vitamins or take your vitamins daily so micronutrients are the major a major group of nutrients that your body needs they are your vitamins and your minerals. So throw up that picture of the vitamin wheel. There we go. So this is the vitamin wheel that, that is available online. You can pick this up. It's a, it's a um, open source um, thing that you can look at on many websites. And so you'll see the vitamins and, the, and then included in this is the color rainbow or the food rainbow. This food rainbow, different colors of food represent or show that it contains different vitamins and different minerals within it. So that which is green, you can see green leafy vegetables up there are going to be high in E, K, and A. Um, that which is red, you can see red vegetables over here are going to be high in B, B vitamins and C vitamins. You're going to see, of course, you know, things that are a little might be more, more uh, orangey. So that orange right there is going to contain your C. Now these are, this is common sense stuff. Um, but what happens in poor nutrition is we don't get enough micronutrients and vitamins and micronutrients and minerals are necessary for energy production. They're necessary for immune function. They're necessary to keep from blood clotting and other functions in our body. So if you are low in vitamin B, you're going to have a mitochondrial problem that your mitochondria is not going to be very efficient if you're low in vitamin B. Um, they play a huge role in growth, huge role in bone health, huge role in fluid balance like like uh, like potassium, huge role in many processes in your body. So when when someone tells you to eat your vitamins, it is crucial that you are eating a healthy diet, which includes many vitamins and minerals, and also just monitoring your quote macronutrients as well, so you're getting the right amount of balanced calories in your body of carbs, protein, and fats, but included in that is the food rainbow. So if you ate around this food rainbow on a weekly basis, and so I can do two servings of this and two servings of that, you can be assured that eventually all through the week, you're getting a balance of micronutrients, the, the food <laughs> rainbow. So my first advice as I have a bachelor's degree in biology with 
an emphasis in natural history and anatomy and physiology. That's the most education I have. I was a personal trainer for quite a number of years, and I, I coached a lot of people in nutrition and fitness. Some of the basic things that I um, have taught is what, mind your macros, like Jake said, and also to eat a balanced diet. So when you eat a balanced diet, that doesn't mean carb restriction. That doesn't mean protein explosion. That doesn't mean just fat explosion in your life like some diets promote. It's very important that you get a, a number of carbohydrates, a number of proteins, and a number of fats. And you can spend time calculating that based on your BMR, your basal metabolic rate, which there's simple calculations. You don't have to go to a facility with a mask. You don't have to do that. You can just make a good guess online and just mind what you're taking in your body. And so they used to say fat makes you fat. And that's actually not true. That fat doesn't necessarily make you fat. Too much fat can, you can build uh, too much fat in your body, yes. But studies have come out that sugar is delicious poison that possibly has, a, well, it does have a lot of data, but possibly in your life, you are ingesting too much uh, sugar. And so I want to talk about specifically as we have talked about macros and micros and eating the food rainbow. I don't want to sound like your first grade teacher in your first health class that you ever took in fifth grade or whenever that was, but it's true. We need to mind these things, eat our vitamins, eat a healthy diet, lots of leafy greens. If you hate vegetables, we need to learn to bread. love them. We need to learn to love green things. We need to learn to love colorful peppers what was and all look these for, good Shreya? things. What was that look for? <laughs> you just roll your eyes. <laughs> we need to learn to eat our carrots. We need to just learn to do these things and take simple baby steps. Today, I'm going to try kale. Tomorrow, I'm going to try cauliflower and carrots. Please look up and recipes for all of those things. Peppers. Chewing yes. on some kale is not the... I do like raw vegetables. I do love to we, eat. Remember when we dried kale that one time, Kevin? How was that? How'd that turn out? Not very good. No, that's not good. But I, I do love raw vegetables. Raw vegetables that are in season are very flavorful. You can taste a lot. It's like a it's like an explosion of fit of flavor, and I just believe that it connects us to the earth. When we eat whole, healthy food, and nothing will nothing will replace a good, healthy diet. So you could say, "Well, I'm just going to go buy vitamin A and start taking a bunch of vitamin A because, you know, I need that vitamin in my life." I would say you can do that, and that's important too to take supplements if you're not getting certain micronutrients. But nothing will replace a good, healthy diet. Nothing yeah. can replace that, really. And so there's fiber, there's micronutrients, there's nutrition, there's good calories within the food rainbow. And I would encourage you uh, to look into it and really spend some time learning and investigating how to eat healthy. All right, so let's look at the science of sugar. The science of sugar is really important because they're starting to think that a lot of obesity is caused from our 
ex, uh, our exponential in our life, sugar ingestion. We eat too much sugar as a society. So Rob, I want you to throw that first picture up. This is how we metabolize uh, sugar. It's just a picture of the human body with a little simple picture. I know this is very simple, but it's, it's, it's simple because I just wanna be simple tonight so that people really capture um, just the mechanics of it. So this is a normal body function. This is a healthy body function. First you ingest food and it enters your stomach. So you can see that little carrot at the top there that this person is eating. They eat that carrot and it enters the stomach. And then carbohydrates are broken down in the stomach. It actually starts in your saliva. That's where, um, that's where digestion starts is in the mouth is when you chew your food. And it's really important to chew your food and chew and chew and chew to break down that food as much as possible in your mouth 20, before what, you swallow it. How many times, it. Like Kevin? Twenty. Oh, it's it's a lot. It's like, let's just say twenty times. Twenty times. Thinking per about bite. thinking about if you take a bite of food and chewing that twenty times, or let's just say ten times. That's a lot, but it's really important because there's a lot of digestion. And that happens, an absorption that happens in the mouth with your saliva. But carbohydrates enter into our body and an enzyme breaks those carbohydrates. And carbohydrates is just um, a macronutrient, right, that our body breaks down into glucose. One of the main components is glucose. That glucose then is allowed to absorb into our bloodstream. So you can see that from the stomach, that little red ball that's coming out of the stomach on this diagram, that is a glucose molecule that's coming and entering into the bloodstream. At that point, your brain triggers your pancreas. Maybe you've heard of your pancreas. Oh, you've hurt my pancreas, right? So you, you maybe have heard of the pancreas. The main function of the pancreas is to produce and release the hormone insulin. Insulin is then, that also enters the bloodstream. So you can see that little blue triangle that enters the bloodstream at that point. The glucose um, has entered into your body and because of the insulin, that now can enter into the tissues of your body. So it can enter into your liver for storage. It can enter into your muscles for glucose storage. So when you do a glycogen release lift in the gym, that means that you pump, you know, 12, 15 times on your, on your bicep curls. It's a glycogen release using the glycogen out of your muscle storage. And so insulin allows tissue to absorb glycogen. So go to that next picture. I'll show you how. So this is a blue cell. The cell is blue and you'll see a glucose channel. That's where the glucose is going to enter into the cell. That is an uptake channel that, that there's an uptake type of receptor there and then the insulin receptor the insulin attaches and this is the magnificence of the human body and the way that god created us the insulin the the cell has an insulin receptor that the insulin attaches to triggers the cell to open up the glucose 
uptake channel and then glucose sugar enters into the cell. That's a normal human body healthy function. The cell at that point then does something with that glucose. And one of the main things that that cell does with the glucose at the mitochondrial level, the brain of the cell, it turns that glucose into adenosine triphosphate, which is ATP. That's the energy molecule that you need to box in the gym that punching bag or to lift those weights or to run and pick up your kid's before they run across the street. That takes ATP energy that your body has that's converted glucose into ATP. This is the, the energy molecule. If you're a healthy person with a healthy amount of sugar or carbohydrate that's been converted to glucose in your diet, then let's say in a perfect world, that glucose is then the extra glucose is stored in your liver and your muscles. So in a future day when you need it, you can tap into it to produce more ATP. But in our imperfect double cheeseburger, double, double large fry, chocolate malt world, right? That extra glucose after it's stored in your muscles, after it's stored in your liver, after you've converted all that you need, probably for a very long time into ATP, that extra glucose now is stored as lipid in your fat cell. And so the science is showing that too much sugar is a major component to the problem with especially childhood obesity. Childhood obesity has lots of research because of the sugar craze. You can take that picture off, Rob. Um, the sugar craze that started basically in 1957 when the American Heart Association published some paper and research on low-fat diets, we entered the low-fat diet craze. And I don't know if you remember when you were a kid or when I was a kid, they had lines uh, that you could pick up government cheese. And the government was paying companies to reduce the fat in their products. Then the government would take that and turn it into cheese. That's where government cheese came from. So you think about in like if you were born in the 1940s and 50s you might have heard about the low fat diet craze where when they lower the fat in products then they up the sugar to make it taste good and so then products begin thing. what low fat craze is still a thing that oh yeah yeah it's been a craze all the way yeah well Till today <laughs> yeah, so, so it's not it's not like it's an old thing yeah it's anyway. not like it's gone but it started in the 1950s and there were some government like authoritative edicts that came down to uh to force companies to make and produce low fat products and so there was incentives during that time um and they increased the sugar to increase the flavor. So sugar intake from that point forward exponentially increased and obesity in America exponentially increased as well. If you look at unhealthy or possibly genetics caused diabetes or that's type one or type two is where poor eating habits and lifestyle, um, but they're 
it's that's some general comments about type one and type two. And I know there's many different causes of type one and type two that we're not going to talk about. So if you have a type two diabetes, um, that just means something. And you say, well, I had a healthy diet my whole life and I ended up with type two diabetes. There's a lot of factors behind type two diabetes. That's just not poor, healthy eating and lifestyle you are, habits. You are nuancing the diabetes. Right. But type two diabetes, the major com major proponent of type two diabetes has been known to be uh, lifestyle and poor eating and fitness habits. So go ahead and throw up types of diabetes and you'll see then our healthy figure on the left, that's healthy metabolism. Type one diabetes is a genetic, which just a known genetic thing. And that means that, I mean, type one diabetes is coming out in people at 30, 35 years old. It's not a childhood thing anymore. And so type one diabetes is that middle picture. We ingest food, same process. Our body turns that into glucose or, or breaks it down rather into glucose. Glucose enters um, the bloodstream, but the pancreas is not producing insulin. So there's there's this this weight put on the pancreas that it that is just not working correctly. And so therefore, um, there's no insulin then to trigger the cell to take the glucose and absorb it into through the uptake channel into the cell in the tissues like muscle and tissues. Uh, like liver and into lipids that are stored as fat, which can be used as energy as well. So type one diabetes, then of course the blood sugar then increases and increases over time. That's why you need to take insulin in many different ways, pumps and injection and such to uh, increase the insulin in our bodies. Type two um, diabetes is a little bit different but there's the cells do not have a functioning insulin receptor so they become insulin resistant so you can see up there you take in the food it enters the stomach you produce glucose that absorbs it you don't produce you breaks down into glucose that's absorbed into the bloodstream the pancreas is trying to function because it's worked for a very long time trying to produce insulin it produces low insulin levels that enters the bloodstream but because the cell is struggling having or does not have proper insulin receptors on uh, on it then it's not triggering the cell to open the uptake channel so that it can absorb uh, glucose into the cell. So therefore, then your blood, your blood sugar then increases and you have to take a pill, shot or pump in order to control your type 2 diabetes. So the difference that I know um, just in my uh, limited knowledge is the simple difference between type one and type two is cell resistance to insulin that glucose is not entering due to insulin resistance on the cell because the cell intake all right so let's just move quickly on uh to one other topic that i have to cover can i, can I yeah can I say one thing um yeah of course you can pull it down, Rob. so you talked about sugar yeah 
uh, <clears throat> there are lots of different types of sugar. Yeah. The, so the three main that, that we have are glucose, sucralose, and fructose. Sucrose and fructose. fructose. Yeah. So the fructose is the main driver of obesity. Can and be, yeah. It is in 74% of all packaged foods under 61 different names. Which is just a huge amount. And so we talk about like how much sugar is around us. It's a lot. And the average American consumes more than 60 pounds of sugar a year. Right. Which is, we get 50 pound bags of sugar at the shop and it's already gross. But just think about just taking a spoon and eating that 17 mm-hmm. spoons a day. Right. It's a lot. Can I say something about that though too? Go for it. Um, like you were just talking about how it's present in packaged food. All the sugar is present in packaged foods. Earlier, Kevin was talking about how um, companies received, I assume, government subsidies to produce low fat but higher sugar past. food. In the past. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I just want to highlight that while a lot of people do have um, a lot of shame around food and around their eating choices, um, mm-hmm. I just want to make a note that sometimes we don't have great choices. Yeah. Um, oh, and absolutely. ease a little bit of the personal responsibility that comes up in that conversation. What's a real bummer about this conversation is some of the cheapest things that we can buy have mm-hmm. the highest sugar in them. And so poverty, when you package poverty right. with this conversation, there's a whole nother level of the layers of poverty that are causing disease, metabolic disease, diabetes and such in our society. That is just it's sad. unbelievable. Unbelievable. Talking about food deserts and people's access yeah. to even mm. even basic groceries. Um, right. Oddly enough, we live in a food desert, but mm-hmm. we sure have, what is a food desert? Yeah, sure was a food desert, but we have the means to go outside of these boundaries in order to in order to feed ourselves. Right. right. Um, Trey, you live in Newburgh. You're not in the food desert, but sure, what is in the food desert? Uh, I I forget What's the how difference? access, and so it has to. You mm-hmm. have to have more than one grocery chain per every ten thousand people. Okay. And so we have two, and one of them is uh, not. I said I shouldn't use names, um, but the just think about the options that we do have in Sherwood. Mm-hmm. we're we're in a food desert no small retailers it's just it is just large right. and expensive grocery options that people can't afford good options right and when the low-fat craze though sharia when the low-fat craze started that was based off of some research that they had that they made decisions on that research Mm-hmm. and started promoting low fat. It had nothing to do with access. It had nothing right. to do with, you know, how cheap food was going to be in the future and such. Um, it had everything to do with, here's a piece of research and we're going to base this decision on this piece of research and change our, basically school our lunches. food pyramid. What'd you say? And school lunches. 
right yeah. right there's a few documentaries on on netflix that anyone can watch to give us mm-hmm. give you more of the basis um fed up is one yes but there's lots of buts there's lots of buts yes. but at least give you like some there's basic some... information i'm Educated. just i just want to i just want to talk about the research this is what the research shows and this is what the science shows so when it comes to our products i know that there's layers and layers and layers of poverty and layers and layers layers of access and whether we're in a food desert or we're in a food mecca um that's not what i'm talking about because there's some ethical and societal socioeconomic issues when it comes to food and nutrition that we certainly can get into um and we probably need to um let me finish my one thing though i have one more thing to cover and then we can move to the application practicality oh yeah we will we'll get there all right so water eight eight ounce glasses of water a day keeps the doctor away that is not true Uh, it is not necessary for our bodies to drink a gallon of water a day even a half gallon of water a day i am not one the research shows that uh drinking water for water's sake does not necessarily promote or keep us hydrated does not promote hydration nor keeps us hydrated the issue is not how much water you're taking in it's the issue of hydration and the science of hydration. It is necessary though to have sugars, carbohydrates that are broken down into glucose and also salt, which is NaCl broken down to sodium. So it's necessary for sodium and also glucose to be involved in hydration. In order for H2O to enter into our cells, there's also another uptake. It requires sodium and also uh, glucose for water to enter our cells. So just drinking water is not necessarily, it's not, now, I'm not gonna say stop drinking water. Please please drink water. Please drink water. Because usually you have enough salt and sugar in your body because of all the other things that we ate. Usually you have enough enough of those to begin to absorb for hydration. But hydration is the key. Hydration is the science of the water getting into your actual tissues of your body. There is a book called Endure that talks about um, endurance training and hydration. And thirst has always been an indicator of I'm dehydrated, I'm thirsty. That's actually not an indicator. It just means that your body, you're telling your body that you're thirsty. It's usually you're long after dehydration by the time that you're thirsty. So it's not an indicator of that you are dehydrated. Some people actually would say it's way too late um, by the time you're thirsty to indicate whether you are uh, hydrated. So how do we regulate our our water in our body, our hydration? Well, it's you there's lots of different everybody is different everybody everybody how they uh how they uh maintain homeostasis when it comes to hydration in your body um there's a lot of factors involved in that illness could be a factor if we are ill i'm sick chronically we have a disease or we're just sick that can like a common cold 
that can have a factor in whether we are hydrated and how we are hydrated and how much we are hydrated or dehydrated. Heat and exercise have definite effects on hydration. So I, when I endurance race, run a marathon or a triathlon, a, a long distance triathlon, I have to take in sugar and I have to take in salt all along the way to stay hydrated. So the key is staying hydrated in the body, not necessarily just drinking water. So my, my nutritionist recommends that I drink because my body size 220 and I have a body fat index. And I also have a BMR of a certain rate and I'm supposed to take in this many uh, calories per day. I'm to take in a hundred ounces of water for my body. That's my recommendation. Yet she wants me to add salt and maple syrup to the water. So I add, you know, she, you, know, it you get used to it, but you add yeah. salt and maple syrup, just a little bit of, uh, uh, it's a tiny pinch of salt and a teaspoon of maple in a 60 or 32 ounce um, Nalgene. Nalgene bottle or whatever. You add that to that and that will keep you hydrated. But we live in a culture that has salt in everything. Table salt is everywhere. It's on our tables at home. It's It's on the back of our of our ranges that we cook on, it's everywhere. And if you look on packaged products, you will see and you will be shocked at how much sodium is in your products just at home, just sitting on the shelf. The bouillon cubes or the 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 chicken broth that you're using or, or such, you start adding up the amount of sodium. Sometimes just in one small meal, you can eat your daily allowance of, what is it, 1,800 to 2,500 milligrams of sodium, the recommendation is. We get plenty of salt. And some of us are salt sensitive. And whether or not based on your uric acid levels in your blood, based on all kinds of factors of genetics, salt can have a great effect on your body when it comes to high blood pressure, when it comes to heart disease, when it comes to aortic challenges in our heart, uh, there are, our kidneys can be affected, inflammation of kidneys. So our renal system actually tells our body to expel or to resist expelling water um, and urea from our body, including in that expulsion salt. And so our body is very resilient when it comes to keeping a balance of hydration and salt and such in our body. Yet if we're drinking gallons of water a day, just know that that's difficult on the kidneys. You can have an inflammation of your renal system, but also you might be flushing potassium, calcium, and sodium out of your body at the same time. So your electrolytes, they call that, or your micronutrients, as the word we learned tonight, could be um, affected. So, so when it comes to training and exercise, nutrition, it's very important to first mind your macros, eat your rainbow, hydrate your body, maintain a, a, a moderate amount of sodium 
do a recommendation. Some people are not affected by sodium. They can take in tons of sodium, 8,000 milligrams a day, and it doesn't affect them. Somebody like me, you know, possibly can take in 2,500 and my blood pressure increases. So we have to be very careful about how much sodium you're getting plenty of sodium. Just look on a, on a, um, anything that's made, that's packaged flour. So not just the package of flour, but anything that's made with white flour that's packaged in your, in your cupboard or your refrigerator, just look at the amount of sodium in that. So let's go to some practical application. It's 913, oh, and I do want to get to the practical. That science took forever. Thank you for holding with me. Uh, let's get to the nutrition and fitness application. Jake, give I, us some I, words I, about this. I, I do think that we can pare this section down because we talked a lot about application through yeah through it. and so even next week is going to be mostly about application questions and stuff like that hopefully um we can have some great questions being asked please um the one stacy cannon stacy cannon next week sound uh, healer meditation guy I, I need sound healing after after tonight uh <laughs> The idea with nutrition and making it practical is that everyone and everybody, not just everybody, but everybody is different, but it's also different in every season. And so what's working for you now may not work for you tomorrow, but you adjust and you learn where you're at so that you can, you can be a student of your body. And so Shreya talked about, um, the very first thing that God commissioned humanity to do is to be skillful masters of creation. And it's also is, is looking at our bodies and researching them and knowing them and knowing how they work and knowing what we're taking in, understanding the difference between a lipid, a carb, and whoa, I'm just spaced that last one. Fat. No, fat. Where am I at? Protein. Protein, Protein fat, and carbohydrate. Yeah. My, my brain is a little bit foggy right now. Um, <clears throat> an idea for diet is that the average American spends 6.4% of their annual income on food. There are only eight countries in the world that spend less than 10%. We're by far the least. Everywhere else is up in the 30s to 40%. Mm -hmm. And so we think... And we live that food should be cheap, should be the cheapest thing that we do, cheaper than rent, cheaper than anything else. But food, water, shelter, it's the most one of the most important things. And we spend the least amount of time thinking about it, the least amount of time knowing about it, and the least amount of time, and least of our budgets following through with it. And so... Do you think that's still true with our hiked food prices? Like how well, expensive things are right now? Inflation is global, right? Okay, good point. It's, I mean, that's my, my thought. Is that is that accurate? I mean, I spend I a lot more than 6.4 on my food. If the things that are affecting the food we eat are also affecting the food others eat, then it would be, I would think. Yeah. Know, know where your food comes from, I think, is a, is a big one as well. That's a very practical advice. Knowing... Knowing where your avocados come from, knowing where your mm -hmm. tomatoes come from, knowing, and these are also 
I'll give the caveat that these are very privileged things, but you're all watching us on a device tonight or whenever you are. So I'm just going to guess that you're privileged enough to look up as well where your food comes from. Whether or not you can do anything about that is something different. Uh, but just having the awareness as well to just know. Use used food nutrition for fuel and pleasure both. I think that if we only use food for fuel or if we only use food for pleasure or as medication or whatever we want to do it with, self-medicating, um, it's unbalanced. And so your fuel should taste good. And what tastes good should fuel you as well. And this also goes back to the, go ahead. Do you have something to say, Kevin? I, I see something there. No. Okay. Oh, I'm, I'm thinking about how my fuel does not taste good. <laughs> Morton is getting better. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so there, there's an evolution of sports nutrition out there that I'm not even wanting to get into tonight, but we don't really need to. Uh, but the just know that, that your body needs it, but also your mind and your soul need it as well. And so just make sure that your stuff tastes good. If I could encourage one thing with your diet, it's not to change anything. It's just to read the package, read the label, and to track your calories. Mm. Just track it to see where you're at. My BMR or RMR, I think I got my RMR tested with the mask thing, was 2,450 calories resting. I struggle consuming that much a day. It is, it is super hard. And so, like, on the opposite end of things, you can also consume too little and still have the same um, metabolic disease that someone that consumes too much as well. So, yeah, track, track your calories. Read the packaging. Read the labels. Know what you're taking in. <clears throat> and also to, to eat to live you know that the healthier option will always make you feel better in the long run. So making that healthier option. Any thoughts so far? Keep going. Keep going. So I think it's all good. I, I think that there's applications um, that are very practical, like literally apps on our yeah. phone that we can download if you have an app-based phone you can download different My fitness pal is a really large one yeah that you can look up your food if you're unsure about what's in it or the caloric value or or what is actually the breakdown of protein fats and carbohydrates in your food there's a simple app called my fitness pal that you can download and track that yeah so i, I will i'll never tell you how or what to eat and we call that what to eat kind of diet mm -hmm. um there are some ones some diets that i think i don't think are fads that that just try and see how they make you feel diet is about trial and error and to see like what makes me feel the best um some big ones for me are the anti-inflammatory diet and so all foods inflammatory no matter what but we can make options and choices to to make those inflammation processes 
the easiest on our body. And so there is a full protocol on anti-inflammatory diets and even, even foods that do take inflammation out of you in the long run. Um, there's what's called the blue zone diet. And that is, that is looking at the places where people live the longest and eating the same way that they do. And so it's very plant-based. There's some uh, proteins of uh, not predator fish, but, but the lower level fish, sardines, what would it be like? Mm-hmm. Um, anchovies. Yeah. Very, very few proteins that are, are predator proteins, especially. Uh, Mediterranean diet. And that's like high in oils and fats. So like on that side of things, uh, pastas, whole grains, not, not just white, white flour. Then you have like the low carb diet or carb cycling. I'm not a fan of keto. People will know that about me easily. I don't, I don't get in behind keto. Well, I don't think it's the healthiest option for your life. And we can talk about it later if you want to, but the, a low carb diet and focusing on, on high proteins, high fats, healthy fats, balanced omega-3, omega-6 fats as well, but also looking at, looking at, um, healthy vegetables that are high in fiber because net, net carbs, you look, always look at net carbs, not gross carbs. And so you, you should be taking in lots and lots of vegetables on this diet. Um, intermittent fasting, look that up. Paleo, also an option. These are trial and errors. So my, my recommendation for people in application is just to try what makes you feel the best. You should feel good with eating. You should feel good after you're done. You shouldn't feel unwell after you eat certain foods, bloated, um, other things. Mm-hmm. Thoughts? Your body is made to eat, produce energy, store for later energy, and to excrete waste in a certain way. And so if you find that you have diarrhea, vomiting, upset stomach, bloating, based on any of your eating, that could be a sign of allergy. That could be a sign of your body. It's just hard on your body. So anything that you're trying and anything that you're doing, if it's causing you to be uh, dysfunctional in any way, in the ways that I just told you, um, then I think it's, you know, maybe a natural sign to at least question it. It might be something your body does um, based on asparagus. But there are certain things that like genetically, if you have, you know, propensity towards gout, asparagus, spinach, cauliflower, just remember that not all healthy foods are healthy for everybody. And so certain things can cause some people are very allergic to red peppers. Some people are very allergic to, um, that have gout is like what I just said, or some people have gluten intolerance or they're celiac. They're actually like, they actually have a diagnosed celiac that gluten is very dangerous for them. So eating breads is not the best choice. Some people Uh, can't take in milk. 
right? Some people are, are allergic to the actual proteins in A1 protein uh, in milk. And so they need to be careful with how and what products they're ingesting. So eat the rainbow. Know what you're eating. Know where it comes from. Nothing replaces a good diet mm-hmm. out of anything. Nothing I'm excited to talk to uh, um, uh, Stacy next week about plant-based diet. Yeah. I think it's it's been fairly new for both of us in it. Mm-hmm. And so... And I definitely have tried every single one of those diets I listed before. Um, but just knowing what works for me best at each season of my life and what I'm doing, the energy output, knowing what I, I need to do and want to do is a part of learning that. Um, part of the, the knowing where your food comes from is knowing the businesses involved with it as well. And so as well, I'll recognize this is a privileged conversation, but, and just knowing how the United States feeds itself, especially the proteins and mass production of corn, mass production of monoculture, uh, plants like soy, um, knowing, knowing how those things are done will affect how you eat. If you see how farmed fish are raised, you will you will definitely think twice about how you eat certain things. If you see how certain like um, a huge corporation's chicken coops look and smell inside, you'll definitely think again. As you just might be a little mindful, but just knowing how things are are processed, knowing how things are raised and grown. Anyway, any more thoughts on nutrition before we move on? Just generally on nutrition, or were you going to cover um, some more with nutrition? Generally nutrition, moving forward and, and going back to it with Stacy. I'm trying to pare it down to where we're at. Yeah, I think that there's just that notion of um, all things in moderation. So there is such a thing called food addiction. And food addiction is something that we inebriate ourselves with food. So whether it be like the comfort food eating, I think just to make a special, give special attention to the fact that there is a food addiction that uh, the fun side of food, um, somebody that has a food addiction, food is not fun. And so to say, oh, the people are just, you know, gluttons and they're just having too much fun with food and that's what caused a food addiction. Um, that's not the base or the foundational idea of food addiction. Food addiction is there's either traumas or hurts, habits, hangups, things that are in somebody's life that they're using food to comfort or to inebriate in a metaphorical sense their body from like feeling certain pains and people use all kinds of things, including food to do so. So we can use food as the big cover up. Um, and it's, and it becomes an emotional exercise versus or emotional dysfunction versus, um, just, you know, just accusing somebody of 
you know, having too much fun with food. You found too much pleasure in food. It actually is a food addiction. So just a special note that there is such a thing as that. I think, I think we can always talk about these outliers of, of addicting behaviors and poverty Mm -hmm. and, and access. Um, This conversation is much deeper and more level has more levels. And I think that we can even begin to grasp. Oh yeah. Yeah. definitely. So if we can go back to nutrition and say, what, what is one thing that we can do honestly do is to just know where your food comes from, track your calories and just try something new on that. Mm -hmm. And then do you want to go through fitness? Are we running too late or are we okay? I think we're running too late. I, but I do want to come back to this fitness. This might turn into a three-part series. Um, but I think that fitness application is really important and we need to spend time with it. So either we take an extra half hour next week or we take extra time with this topic. I think that would be very appropriate. I want to give you the opportunity. We all went, or I went way too long tonight. Um, but I think all of it is kind of building blocks towards building a better you. Uh, but the Bible does talk a lot about food and I think foundationally what you talked about, Jake, what I talked about with food and Shreya theologically, what you talked about, remember that, uh, most of fitness is built in the kitchen. And so most of our fitness is built in what we eat. Um, you can lift all the weights that you want, but if you're pounding cheeseburgers all day long, it's not going to work. So, so focusing on food was important. Reframing fitness. I think we talked about, there needs to be a separation between athleticism and fitness and that fitness is the way I take it is more cognitive. So how your mind is fit, physical, how Mm -hmm. your body is fit and emotional, how your emotions are fit. And those three things tie together as a fit person. I think you could be a super athletic person, but not be fit. Oh, absolutely. And yeah. so, yeah. And so working towards a balance of those three things, um, would be the biggest takeaway that I had, but we can go through that later. Yeah. I think just in conclusion to what we talked about, I think that being nutritionally fit, if you want to say it that way, nutritionally fit, there is a big difference between being an athlete. That's a very specific focus, um, with athleticism or exercise, but being fit, you know, there are recommendations of exercise and recommendations of nutrition that gives you the best opportunity to be fit. Now we do understand there's other factors. One of the factors is genetics and genetics set up our environment to be a certain way, no matter what. And so we might have some, no matter what I do, I am this way or I can't do this, or I'm not able to, you know, I'm not able to do the high jump. I never have been able to do the high jump. I don't want to do the high jump, but maybe my genetics are made that I throw um, axes and logs, you know, cause I'm built like a Clydesdale. So, so my genetics promote a certain level of athleticism, 
but everybody can have a level of fitness. I think that everybody can have their level of fitness um, also based on genetics. So there are some there are some components to what we're talking about that um, are factors. Disease, um, age, there are factors like that as well that uh, promote or or hinder our abilities um, when it comes to certain traditional type exercise. But going back to what we just said, or I just said, is most of our fitness, like 70, like the statistic is 75% of our fitness is built in our kitchens. And so that means the food that we eat and what we're actually ingesting is very important. So some highlighted products that you can research and look into yourself is do your best um, when it comes to products to shop on the outside, right? Is that it? Shop on the outside of the market. That's where your veggies and your fruits and your veggies and such are located. Um, I do have noticed that some stores put their bakeries and also their um, their sugary products out on the out margins of the store as well. Uh, try to stay out of the center aisles. That's what they say. But uh, but make some lists, some practical things, make some lists of some products and eat whole foods as much as you can. Stay away from packaged foods if you can afford it. That's the key. If you can afford it, try to stay with whole foods. If you need supplements, there's companies like Athletic Greens. There's companies like Thorn Research that have very clean products that you can purchase. There's lots of research and also testing that they put their products through. So Thorn Research is a company that is well known and also Athletic Greens for a daily um, supplement. If you're struggling eating the rainbow, you can take in some of these products um, to supplement. But remember that nothing replaces a good whole foods uh, diet. Any other recommendations? We, we already said Andrew Huberman, David Sinclair, Peter Atia. You can look at their websites for some interesting, um, good core-based uh, research. Jake, do you have any other Shreya, do you have any other recommendations? Yeah, if you're able to shop farmer's markets, that's a really great way to get whole foods and to know where your food comes from. Mm -hmm. Yes, very local farmer's markets that are located mm -hmm. in uh, towns on main streets and such that you can find locally, especially during the summertime. You also know that they're in season during that time too. Um, all right. Well, with that, thanks the two of you for all of your knowledge and input and studying on this topic. Uh, who knows how many uh, weeks we're going to spend with this? At least two. So part two next week with Stacy Cannon. We're going to invite her on. She is a an endurance triathlete, but plant-based endurance triathlete, which is very different and awesome to think about that somebody can actually run 140.6 um a triathlon and do it all with plants and just plants. She's a full vegan, also yoga instructor, sound healer, and fitness coach and nutrition coach. So we're going to invite her next week to talk more about fitness and nutrition, and we hope that you join us. And with that, good night, everybody. Thanks for being here tonight.